Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. In 2014, I went on a trip that checked off uh, two items on my bucket list. A friend of mine invited me to join him to go to the Final Four, which if you're unfamiliar with that, March Madness, college basketball, it's the last four teams left. I've always been a huge college basketball fan, and since I was a little kid, dreamed of going to the Final Four. Never thought I'd get there. At the time, I was living in Madison in the UW Badgers, go Badgers, went to -to back-to-back Final Fours. So I got to go cheer on the Badgers with my friend. So that was one bucket list item checked off. The second was the site of the 2014 Final Four was AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, home of my Dallas Cowboys. So that was another bucket list item to see AT&T Stadium, which was built in 2009, over a billion dollar project. I think there'll be a picture that comes up of the inside of AT&T Stadium. It's, you can put 105,000 people in. They have arches that form a dome of 300 feet. And if you don't want to watch the action on the field, you can watch on one of the world's largest LED uh, screens. When we woke up uh, the morning of the Final Four and we made our way with throngs of people to to AT&T Stadium, suddenly it just took over the horizon. I knew it was going to be big, but it was ginormous. And as I walked inside, my heart was fluttering with excitement. And I walked into the stadium and saw the Cowboy Ring of Honor and saw the eight NFC Championship banners, the most ever, and the five Super Bowl Championship banners. And I felt like I was on hallowed ground. Now, I know some of you watching online right now are trolling me in the comment section as a Cowboys fan how long it's been since the last championship. Just cut it out, okay? Pay attention. Uh, if If you can think of something like that in your journey, Uh, a building, a place, a space that feels hallowed, that you've got butterflies in your stomach as you enter in. And you can channel that right now and remember that. It will help you understand the context of today's story. We're in the second week of a series, a 10-week series in the Gospel of John called Encountering Jesus. John's goal for his gospel is that we would know Jesus more so we can trust Jesus more so that we would find life in his name. To help us on that journey, John's going to give us all of these metaphors or images to help us uh, know Jesus and trust Jesus more so we can find life in his name. So for nine weeks, we're going to look at a different metaphor of Jesus. We need to we need to take all of them together to get a fully orbed picture of Jesus. If you missed last week, and maybe you without power, and some of you maybe still are without power, and uh, our prayers go out to you, uh, you can go online and watch the message from last week. And our metaphor was Jesus as word, or that Greek word is Jesus as logos, that Jesus is God creating anew. It's a very captivating image. So please go back and watch it, because you want to put all these metaphors together to get the proper picture of Jesus. This week, our, our metaphor is Jesus as temple, and Chris is going to read our passage for us. Take it away, Chris. I'll be reading from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. 
When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to the went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that the that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Chris, uh, for reading that passage. And maybe some of you are familiar with this scene. It's in, it's in all four uh, of, of the Gospels. Uh, to understand this scene, uh, we have to understand the role and the grandeur of the temple. So let me set the stage a little bit, and then we'll come back to talk about the passage. The temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, was central to Jewish life. It was the, the hub of, of religious and cultural and natural and national uh, life. It would be like, uh, it's really hard to even give it an example, it would be like if we combined our White House and our Capitol and the Supreme Court building and the Pentagon, and then we threw in uh, the the uh, the Vatican, perhaps, or uh, the Sistine Chapel, something like that, all in one building. That's how important it was uh, to to Jewish folks. It was the center of their universe. Why? Well, it's pretty simple. They believed that God's presence actually dwelt in the temple. They believed the temple was the place where where heaven and earth came together. And if you remember back to our Lord's Prayer series, heaven isn't some kind of distant place we go to. Heaven is the metaphysical space right now where God reigns and rules in an uninterrupted state. It's the, the metaphysical space where, where sin does not inhibit a relationship with God. The temple was the place where, where earth and all of our messiness and all of our brokenness and all of our sin met heaven. Super, super important. Uh, that's the role of the temple. Now we have to understand the grandeur of the temple. The Jewish temple, uh, called Herod's Temple or the Second Temple, was the most magnificent building in the ancient world, bar none. Nothing is, is, is even close. There's going to be a couple pictures uh, to come on the screen to help you get this in your mind's eye. The first is, is a replica model built by uh, Alec Garrod. Uh, it's, a, it's a 1 to 100 scale model. 20 by 12, and Alex spent uh, 30 years and 33,000 hours building this model. You can read some articles online about it, and, and archaeologists and historians consider it the most accurate model of the temple. That gives you a little bit of an idea. The second picture that'll come up, if you go to the Holy Land, you can actually stand and see this, and it's meant to give scale on how big the temple was according to the, the city of Jerusalem in which it was part of. And it just shows you it dominates the ancient city of Jerusalem. 
And the final pic picture is an actual painting, a, a depiction of, of what the temple might have looked like. So all those together, I hope you can begin to grasp uh, the grandeur of it. Let me give you some more uh, details. Uh, people uh, travel from all over the world to see the temple, not only Jewish people, but certainly Jewish people. They would come to Jerusalem if they could three times a year for the pilgrim feast. Uh, Herod the Great, it's called Herod's Temple because Herod the Great, he ruled uh, Judea. Uh, he ruled under the authority of Rome, but they gave him lots of freedom. And Herod the Great was not a good leader. Uh, he was not, not a good person, per se, but he was a magnificent builder, uh, one of the greatest ever in the ancient world. And his crown jewel was the temple. So Herod uh, took Solomon's temple, uh, which had, in, it, it, Solomon's temple had been rebuilt, but 500 years had come under decay and was crumbling in places, and, and he wanted to win the favor of the Jewish people. So Herod the Great decided to double the size of Solomon's temple and uh, fix it up and make it this magnificent uh, piece of architecture, which it ended up being. He started the project in around 20 BC, and, and it went all the way through uh, f f 66 uh, AD. He used 1,000 priests that were trained as architects and stone cutters, and 18,000 men worked full-time all of those years uh, to bring the temple to where it was at. Basically, to, to double the size of it, he had to level off an entire mountain, and he built these massive retaining walls to kind of hold up the temple mount. And some of the stones that he used were 100, more than 100 tons. The biggest they found was, was over 500 tons. And I think there's going to be a picture that, that comes up of the southern wall that you can go to today, and you can just see there's some people in that picture, the scale of how big uh, the, these stones were. Uh, the main temple complex, or the kind of the, the main temple, was completed in about a decade so that the sacrificial system could go on. But all the other work around the temple complex continued throughout Jesus' day and past Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. So when Jesus is in the scene, uh, there's a construction project all around him uh, as well. Uh, when uh, Titus, the, the Roman general, came around AD 70 and invaded Jerusalem and stood in front of the temple. It was so magnificent, he didn't want to destroy it, but armies do what armies do, and the temple was destroyed, which Jesus predicted it would be. Uh, here's another picture that comes on the screen of, of the layout of the temple, and again, this will be important. We'll come back to this and understanding what Jesus is doing and why he is doing it. There were two outer courts of the temple. One was the, uh, the, the outermost court was the, the Gentile court where, where anyone could come. Uh, right inside that was the second outer court, which was the Jewish outer court where, where only Jewish folks could come. And then uh, you went into the inner courts, and there were three inner courts. Uh, the court of, of women, where, where Jewish women could come. Then the court of Israel, where only a ritually clean Jewish men could go. And then the final inner court was the court of priests, and that's where only priests could go, and that's where they prepared uh, the sacrifices. Then we come to the temple, and the temple floor is about 30 feet above the Gentile court. So every step that you're going, you're hitting barriers, but you're also going higher and higher and higher. So you come to the actual temple, only priests could go in the temple, and you would enter a vestibule or a lobby first, and then you would hit this veil or this Babylonian massive curtain that would separate the lobby of the temple from the sanctuary. Then you enter the sanctuary, and then finally you have one little room called the Holy of Holies where, where God's presence dwelt. And the only person that could go in the Holy of Holies was the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. So that, that's kind of the idea. It's, it's, we need to get this in our minds and our hearts. And again, it's, 
it's so difficult for us to understand the role and the grandeur of the temple. It was approximately 47 football fields. That's how big the temple complex was. And it could fit over a million people. On the outside of the temple was solid gold and the top part was, was brilliant white marble. And when the sun would come up in the morning, it was literally blinding. Jerusalem is already on a hill and the temple, this massive temple is up on a mountain. So you could see this gleaming temple from so many miles away on a, on a clear day. To understand what's going on in the story, we have to understand the role and the grandeur of the temple. So keep that in your mind's eye as now we step into the narrative that Chris read earlier. All four gospels have this story. It's an important story. One uh, difference is that John places at the very beginning of his gospel where Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, all put it right before Jesus's uh, uh, arrest and, and death. So did somebody get it wrong? Were there two clearings of the temple? Scholars debate these things. Here's what, what I think happened, and I feel pretty confident this is, this is the case. I don't think anybody got it wrong. I think that Matthew and Mark and Luke have the chronology right. I think this clearing of the temple happened during Jesus's last trip to Jerusalem uh, right before his death. I think John understands the importance of this story and this, the importance of this image or this metaphor of Jesus as temple. So John moves it for theological purposes all the way to the beginning of his gospel. This, will be, this image will be a key that begins to unlock who Jesus is all along the way. I think John fully knows when it happened, but John's a different kind of gospel. We talked about that last week. You can go back and listen to that message. He's doing something different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's making a case and a statement about who Jesus is. So I think that's what's going on there. John tells us contextually that it was Passover. There was three pilgrim feasts where able-bodied, healthy Jewish people would, would come to Jerusalem. The Passover was the biggest. 300 to 400,000 people would descend. Uh, and this, this Passover feast commemorated uh, when Israel was kind of set free from bondage in Egypt. And if you remember that story, the night before, the angel of death came and the, the homes that had the blood of the lamb that had been sacrificed over the door, the angel of death passed over. And so big moment, the exodus in, in the Jewish people's story. So every Passover they would come and th there was a sacrificial process and, and they were meant to make sacrifices and then they would gather around a meal and retell the story, re-enter into the story. So Jesus is there for this. Uh, John tells us that there, there were oxen and sheep and birds right there in the Gentile court of the temple. And, and Jesus comes upon this scene and something about this scene enrages him. So John tells us that Jesus makes a whip, he constructs a whip and he begins to drive the animals out of the court of the temple at the same time flipping over the tables of the money changers. So here's what's going on. Uh, you, a lot of people, pilgrims, would come from a, a distant place in the country. Jesus would have been one of those. And they're not gonna bring their sacrificial animal all that way with them. That's untenable. So there, there was a whole market that would sell animals ready for sacrifice. So the pilgrims would arrive, buy their animal, and then they would come and they would have to pay for their animal, but they have to also pay their temple tax. And they couldn't use Roman coin because Roman coin had the image of the emperor and was unclean. So they had to change their money in for proper money in which they could pay their tax and pay for their animal. It was a thing. 
Everyone had to do it. Jesus himself probably did it many, many times. And But here he is, here's Jesus, and he's clearing out all the commerce and all of this trade with this whip. A couple of things. Uh, one, Jesus is clearly uh, performing an act of civil disobedience. That, that's, that's crystal clear. But oftentimes, we're, we're, people read this story and they're like, well, Jesus was violent. I'll push back on that. I don't think Jesus was violent. Uh, he would have never have been able to enter the temple with any kind of weapon. So we have this picture that Jesus kind of showed up with this huge whip over his shoulder, uh, ready to just, just, just send everybody uh, you know, running for dear life. Jesus would not have been able to enter the temple court. So Jesus likely picked up something there like hay or straw that was used to feed the animals and maybe it was already bound together. It's that kind of whip. It wasn't really a whip. You don't, it doesn't take much to scatter animals. So he would pick up this, this bundle of hay, if you will, and he was angry. And that, that's pretty clear. And he used the hay to, and you get one animal going, you get a lot of animals going. So 300,000 people, families there buying their sacrificial animal, money changing hands, massive temple. You can kind of picture it. And here's Jesus, eyes blazing, something's got him upset. He's got the bundle of hay and he's just, and once it starts going, there's birds flying everywhere and there's cattle taking off and sheep taking off and families are like, what's going on? That's the scene. It's a scene, not necessarily of violence, but it is a scene of, of, of chaos. So the, the question comes, why? Why would Jesus do this? You can't read the story and think, oh, that's normal behavior. We know that Jesus came to Jerusalem regularly. We have every expectation that as a child, he came maybe annually and came to the Passover and participated as a young child, did everything that all the other pilgrim families did, purchase their animal and pay their tax and exchange their money. Jesus did this. He participated in this. Jesus paid the temple tax. We know that from Matthew's gospel. Here's one interesting tidbit that might inform why Jesus did what he did. The high priest Caiaphas, we think in around uh, AD 30, had a power struggle with the Sanhedrin or the, the, the governmental body of Jewish leaders. And before that time, the, the market to buy your sacrificial animals and pay for them and even probably pay your tax was not on the temple grounds. Caiaphas, in a power move, had moved them onto the temple ground. So this was likely a brand new thing for Jesus. So there's something in that. Jesus is coming and he's come to Passover a ton of times, and this is brand new. When he looks up and he sees the temple court, suddenly what was maybe, we think previously in the Kidron Valley, was now brought onto the temple grounds. And this enraged him, and he, he cleared it out. Uh, his disciples, John's writing later, remember, he's looking back and he's saying, those of us who were watching Jesus do this, we were reminded of Psalm 69.9, uh, zeal for your, your house will consume you. As we look at the Old Testament prophets, Jesus is stepping into their shoes. The Old Testament prophets talked often about protecting the integrity of the temple and God's house and making sure it was doing what it was supposed to do. And when it got corrupted, and it often got corrupted, the prophets would predict that maybe it would be destroyed. And at times it would be. And Jesus himself said that the temple would one day be destroyed. One of the prophets said that on the day of the Lord, kind of this future prophetic day, there would be no merchants in the temple. That's really interesting. Jesus is stepping in and bringing life uh, to those words. The, the, the Jewish leaders are there and they're watching this chaotic scene. And after it's over, 
I picture Jesus kind of calming down a little bit. His disciples would be like, what's going on with you? What was that? And they approach Jesus. And it's interesting. They don't tell him that what he did was wrong. Maybe they even agreed with what he did. Maybe they were in the camp that was having this power struggle with, with Caiaphas. What they did is they asked him, under whose authority did you do this by? And then Jesus, uh, he, he, Jesus gives this classically Jesus riddle, this kind of cryptic line that kind of makes your head hurt and has double and triple meanings. And Jesus says that, um, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. The, the Jewish leaders immediately, they scoff, they laugh, and they picture the temple. We know how big it is now, or at least we, we're trying to capture that in our mind's eye. They're like, destroy this temple? They said, it took 46 years. You're going to destroy this temple and build that back up in three days. They're, they're taking Jesus's words at face value, and they scoffed at them. They were skeptical. You would be skeptical. I would be skeptical if you're looking at this incredible building. Jesus, though, John tells us, wasn't talking about the physical temple. John is, gives us this editorial comment that unlocks the passage for us. And he says the, the temple that he was talking about was his body. And here we have the second metaphor. Last week, Jesus as word, this creative force. This week, it's Jesus as temple. Uh, Jesus loved the temple. Uh, Jesus, uh, it, was, it was his father's house. In fact, that when, when Jesus, when they said, why, why are you doing this? Jesus says, well, you're making my father's house a house of trade. Jesus was passionate about the temple. He was a pious Jewish man. He grew up coming to the temple, feeling the butterflies in his stomach, uh, offering sacrifices, participating in it. Remember the story. You may remember the story when Jesus got lost in Jerusalem and where did uh, Mary and Joseph find him? They found him in the temple, or Jesus acted like they should have just known he was there. He says, I'm in my father's house. Jesus was fiercely devoted to the temple because he knew the temple was where, where heaven and earth uh, came together. It's really, uh, it would be really easy to make this story, uh, and oftentimes people do, uh, simply about, oh, there's commerce going on, and Jesus didn't like that, so he drove it away. There, that's a piece of it. I think that Jesus was genuinely bothered that, that, that the trade that happened someplace else for all of his life suddenly was in the court of the temple. But I think that was the catalyst that drives us to a much greater point. Here's what I think is going on. Jesus knew, and, and I think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had the chronology right. In, in just a very short amount of time, Jesus would be arrested and he'd be hanging on a cross. Jesus knew that soon the temple and the role of the temple and what the temple was meant to do it would be obsolete. It would be no longer needed. Jesus knew uh, that, that what he was about to do, climbing on a cross and giving his life for you and for me, uh, making right everything that's ever been wrong, being as John told us in John 1, another image John gave us, being the ultimate lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that what Jesus was about to do would make the temple unnecessary. <laughs> so what once put it, uh, Jesus is telling us in this story that, that the city wasn't big enough for the two of them. It wasn't big enough for him and the temple. That's saying a lot, knowing the size of the temple. In other places, J Jesus claims to be greater than the temple. Can you imagine how much that would make people's minds hurt? <laughs> Understanding how Jewish people felt about the temple, seeing the size of it. Jesus is telling us unequivocally, that in him, not in a temple, not in a building anymore, but in him now 
is where heaven and earth uh, come together. Jesus is where heaven and earth uh, come together. This connects us back to our first metaphor, and we'll, we'll see these relationships between all these metaphors that John's putting together because he's building a portrait of Jesus. If you remember back last week in John 1, verse 14, John tells us Jesus, the word, became flesh, and I, I said this last week, the Greek word means, and tabernacled among us. That's the, the, the literal translation. And that's a hyperlink back to the Jewish people, uh, people going through the wilderness and God having them construct this tabernacle or elaborate tent where his presence would dwell. And that was the precursor to the temple where God's presence would dwell. And John's telling us Jesus, the word, Jesus, the logos is now the new temple. There's no more need for that huge temple that the Jewish people so revered. Now Jesus in his body through his work is the new temple. Jesus is where heaven and earth come together. Uh, what's going on at the deeper heart level of Jesus is we I always try to picture Jesus's face as he's clearing the temple. What, what was he like? What was going on in his mind and his heart as a man? And I think Jesus was was consumed. That's the word from Psalm 69, 9. Jesus was consumed with removing all barriers uh, to God. I think that's what is compelling him to take the, the, the makeshift whip or the bundle of hay and clear out the temple. Back to Psalm 69, 9, uh, the first part of that verse, King David uh, initially wrote this psalm. These are his words. Uh, Zeal for your house consumes me. Those are King David's words. It's interesting that when John attributes that verse to, to Jesus, when he's writing later, he changes the tense of it. I don't know if you noticed that. King David's original words are, zeal for your father's house consumes me. John says, zeal for your father's house will consume me. Those are the words he puts on Jesus's lips, pointing to what's about to happen on the cross. What would compel Jesus to be consumed? This word in the Greek literally means to eat up something. And we still maintain that idea of the word. When you say somebody's consumed by something, you're saying it's eating them up inside. We understand what that means, but there was a, a more literal aspect of this word that, that meant literally to be devoured, to, to give your life. And I think this is what John is pointing to. Jesus' zeal for removing all barriers to God would literally consume him. He'd literally give his life for that. Go back to, to the layout of the temple. It was all about hierarchy. It was all about barriers. It was all about who got in and who got out. I mean, think back through what I walked you through before. The Gentiles, they're on the very outer bit. They could barely step on the temple complex, in the temple complex. And then you have the, the Jew, all Jewish people. And then next, Jewish women, but they could only go so far. And then you would have Jewish men, but only ones that had been ritually clean. And then only priest, and then only the high priest once a year. And everybody had to come under the sacrificial blood of an animal. So many barriers, so many ways to keep people from God. The prophetic vision in the Old Testament for the temple was that one day by God's grace and through God's work, all people would be able to come. All the nations of the earth would be able to come to the temple. I think that's resonating in the heart of Jesus. Let's go back to the Gentiles. Uh, if you caught that detail I gave you earlier, Caiaphas moved all the commerce of the money changing and the buying animals 
onto the grounds of the court of the Gentiles. They already could barely get close to the temple. They could barely get close to this presence of God. And suddenly they couldn't even step foot on because the commerce took advantage. I think that's what's going on in Jesus. He's saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> the temple is supposed to be a place where, 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 where people can come from all over the world to experience God's presence. Gentiles now have no place to even come. So he took care that day of that barrier. In a few short days, he'd take care of every barrier. Once the Gentile court was cleared, the Gentiles could, could come up to a certain place. We found archaeological evidence that, there's, that at the end of the, the court of the Gentiles, there was a four and a half foot wall that separated it. And then it was up about eight feet from the next court, which was the court of the Jewish people. They could go no further. And we found an act, the archaeologist found an actual sign that, that reads this. No stranger is to enter within the partition wall and enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue. <laughs> I mean, that's welcoming. Can you imagine if we had a sign like that in our church building? You could only come so far. If you go beyond this point, your death will happen. It will ensue. I mean, it's the very opposite of what the temple was supposed to be that enraged Jesus and it consumed Jesus to the point that he gave his life. And through him, through his death and through his resurrection, everyone from all over the face of the globe would have uninhibited access to God. Prior to COVID, my, my friend Stephen, uh, who, who attends uh, New Hope, uh, he, he, has a, he had a, a friendship and a connection somehow. I need to dig in what, what his connection was in the past with the Harlem Globetrotters. So he knew the people that kind of managed them. He knew a number of the Globetrotters. So he texted me one day. He was all excited. This is maybe a year and a half ago prior to COVID. And he's like, hey, they're coming to the Moda Center. I can get you and your family uh, free tickets. Our daughter Eden couldn't go, but uh, Jubilee, our daughter, brought, brought a friend along. So Corey and I and, and Jubilee and her friend Tenley attended. And it was wonderful. I remember going to the Globetrotters when I was a kid. And, and they're so entertaining. And you laugh and you have fun. And you're watching really athletic feats. And uh, our, the, the girls especially enjoyed the first female Globetrotter running circles around all the guys. So he told us, hey, at the end, maybe I can, I can get you some VIP access. I, I didn't really know what that meant. It, it, I couldn't even remember what it was like to go to a Globetrotter game. But essentially at the end, if you've been to one, uh, they rope off the court and security lines that. And then the, the Globetrotters all spread out. So they're on the inside of the rope. And then everyone presses down and you come and you can talk to them and you can get pictures taken and you can get stuff that you bought autographed and people kind of work their way around. So everybody wanted to do this. The kids are excited that you know, these, these are amazing people. Let's go meet them. And we're pretty high up. And, you know, by the time we started making our way down, there was a long line. And I'm just like, oh, man, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to wait in line, but, you know, want to be a good dad. And so we slowly made our way down. And then way down there on the court, I see my friend Stephen. He's like waving at us. And he's like, come on. So we did that awkward thing where you're like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And people give you the dirty looks all the way down to the floor of the motor center. Then we had this big security guy behind this rope. And there's Stephen. And Stephen literally turned to the big security guy and said, they're with me. And in that moment, he smiled. He smiled at us. He smiled at Stephen. And he opened up the ropes and he led us on to the Moda Center Court, which I quickly went over and acted like I was shooting free throws and embarrassed the girls, but that's okay. And then we walked with Steven around to every single Harlem Globetrotter. He knew most of them. And they turned from signing the long line of autograph seekers to us 
smiled, interacted with us, said hi to Steven, signed everything we wanted, and then we got a picture with every single one. I felt terrible that they were like giving us that attention, but we were literally VIPs. These people didn't know me at all. This wasn't because of who I was. It was because who Stephen was and his relationship with them. It's all about who you know. As we hear this story, there, there's some of us as we listen to the story, and we, we operate kind of like the temple was put together. We think that way in our relationship with God. Church does that to us. Our brokenness does that to us. Our shame does that to us. And there's many of us, myself included, that have often been on, feel like we're on the outside looking in, that we're out on the Gentile court or we're one of these lower courts, and we can never make ourselves our, our way into the actual presence of God. And we carry those burdens, and that's the hope of this metaphor. That's the hope of this story, that, that our access to God and our fellowship with God entering into that place where, where heaven and earth come together isn't about me. It isn't about who I am and what I do or don't do. It's not about you. It's not about who, what you do or don't do. It's about Jesus. It's about what he has done for us. And, and remember the goal of John's gospel, that we might know him, that we might entrust ourselves more to him, that we might find life in his name. John wants us to see Jesus as the temple, not, not the old building. That, that's no longer necessary, but Jesus as the temple, the place through his death and resurrection where heaven and earth come together. And that free invitation to uninhibited access to God is granted us through Jesus. Uh, as I learned with my friend Stephen that day, it's all about who you know. Let me pray for us. God, thanks so much uh, for the hope of this metaphor, Jesus as temple. It's odd at first when we hear that. We don't understand it, but as we begin to, to grasp the role and the grandeur of the temple in the ancient world and the audacity of what Jesus did that day, of what he said, of what he said he was going to do, and then what he did, God, Oh, the freedom, at least from my heart, that I don't have to put on airs and I don't have to perform. I don't have to bring an animal and exchange money and jump through all these ropes and hoops and do this and do this and be perfect and be clean. It's all about Jesus. It's all, it's all about who we know. And John so desperately wants us through this metaphor to step more deeply into relationship with Jesus, to, to look to him literally for dear life. And may we do that today, wherever we are in the spiritual journey, when we double down on Jesus as the one, uh, as the place and the person and the space where, where heaven and earth come together. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.